But nonetheless, it's so important um, because I didn't write that. I, I didn't write that hymn. I didn't write that psalm. Uh, uh, the Lord inspired the psalmist to write it, and it's in the scriptures for us to hear, for us to read, for us to pray, for us to sing. In this Psalter that is meant to train our prayers, to train our thoughts, to train our piety, which does raise the question, well, what's that doing in there? Again, we talk about countercultural. We talk about non-politically correct. Um, it's bizarre to sing such things in a culture like ours, I think. And we have to reckon with it. And we have to reckon with texts like we have before us in the story of Joshua. It's a text and a story that is often used, in fact, as counter-arguments against the Christian faith. Right? The violence done in the name of God, and not just in the name of God, but supposedly by the commandment of God. In the book of Deuteronomy, in preparation for this battle, they are told, leave not one thing alive. Man, woman, child, animal. And I remember listening to debates with Christopher Hitchens, you know, and he would, he would bring this up and call God genocidal. And how can we believe in the God of the Bible <clears throat> who, who is by our own account in the scriptures, as he would say, genocidal. Um, so it's, so singing these things and reading these things are important for us to reckon with um, as Christians and for us to, again, think about the story that we are in and to be careful that we are not conformed to the pattern of this world, Romans 12, but rather transformed by the renewing of our minds and and that's not something you just go, okay, I'm going to be transformed in the renewing of my mind today. <laughs> come on, mind. Come on, be transformed. It comes through this. It comes through this. You have to eat and drink this. This is your food. And as we eat and drink this, the word of God, the scriptures, then our minds will, by the spirit, be transformed. But this is the narrative. This is the lens through which you have to look at the world and it's hard for us because we are saturated. We are completely ensconced in the American culture, in 21st century Western culture, which has a lot of good things. Don't get me wrong. I'm not here to slam American culture or to slam Western culture. But it becomes the dominant lens through which we view the world, and we start filtering things out of the Bible that don't fit with that lens. And that's dangerous. And so even we come to texts like this with Joshua, though we will not, we're not reading particularly the, 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 the destruction that he, he brings. We're just looking at the entrance into the battle and the, how it goes down. But stories like this and the destruction that comes, and, and we squirm as Christians. And we're like, ah, you know, we're a little embarrassed by it. To, to talk about God and, and how, how this can be consistent with what we see in the New Testament. And we even do, we even bring horrible ideas to it, like, well, that was the Old Testament. Um, and, you know, back then, you know, he did seem a little grumpy. But, but in the New Testament, he, there, we clear he's a God of love. Um, we've talked a little bit about that in Sunday school, and, and we just do horrible, horrible uh, hermeneutics and exegesis when we do things like that, and, and, and I, I think even slander God when we do that, but we do things like that because, again, we're thinking as 21st century Americans and trying to 
squeeze the Bible into that and not rather and being conformed to the pattern of this world rather than being transformed in the renewing of our minds by the scriptures and then coming to our American 21st century culture and looking at it through the lenses of the scriptures. Um, so it's something you have to be intentional about. I have to be intentional about this um, or, else, or else we'll very quickly, if, if we're unintentional, we will be conformed to the pattern of the world. It's going to happen. So we have to think about that. All right, so as we come today to Joshua and we, we think about the text that's before us, again, we've been on this series in which we're hop, skipping, jumping our way through Old Testament text, trying to learn how to read it, setting the pattern of how to approach the Old Testament text by coming to it with the lens of Jesus. And then even looking at Jesus through the lens of the Old Testament but what's important here is that we've seen the connection between the two. It's not like, well, there's all these great historical stories, and then there's the story of Jesus. I wonder how they fit. Or it's not like there's a bunch of moral tales, and Jesus then is the final example of fulfilling all these moral tales. And that this, again, is the way that a lot of uh, Christians read the Bible and read the Old Testament. We don't want to do that. Jesus said, you'll remember that when Moses wrote, he wrote about me. If you believe Moses, you believe me because Moses wrote about me. So then as we read the Old Testament, we're reading about Christ, but we're reading about Christ in the shadows using Hebrew's language. Right? We're, we're, the, the tracks are being laid. The groundwork is being prepared. All these stories are true stories, true historical stories, but they're laying the tracks. They're preparing the ground. They're giving us the forms that Christ is going to come in and fill so that as he comes and John says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We say, yes, we've been waiting. We've been waiting. So these stories are doing that. So we've been looking at several, and then we, during Advent, jump back to look at some of birth narratives. And in two weeks, we're going to go back and touch some that we've skipped. As we go through Lent, and we'll think about some of the sacrifice passages and so forth. So today we come to Joshua. Now, where, where, where are we in this narrative arc? I mentioned to you when we went and did a few in Exodus that when we're talking about the Exodus, we're talking about the story of the Bible, right? The grand narrative is represented for us in the story of the Exodus, and we related that to our own Christian lives and to the work that Christ is doing, leading us out of slavery, conquering the great Pharaoh, bringing us out through the waters that judge and crush Pharaoh's army, but for us are waters of deliverance, out into the wilderness where it is a land filled with trial, filled with temptation, filled with want, in which we really are broken and forced to depend upon the Lord. If we're going to eat, he's going to have to provide manna. If we're going to drink, it's going to have to come out of a rock. You know, if we're going to win battles, Moses is going to have to keep those arms lifted. Right? We're gonna, we are going to have to trust in the Lord. It requires faithfulness. We see that. We see that even in this text. That whole first generation is gone. They were disobedient. And they would not enter the rest. There's a chastening there for us to think about. And, and, and not just because we're being moralistic, but because the Apostle Paul does in 1 Corinthians 10. says, see them, remember them in the wilderness. Don't you be like them. Don't be like them. They failed. They, 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 the Lord came and judged them. And the author of Hebrews says, hey, see how they didn't enter that rest? Don't you be like them. You, you need to strive. We need to take obedience seriously and strive to enter the rest that has already been achieved for us. 
And so they come to the Jordan. Of course, they wouldn't enter the land. Joshua and Caleb said we should. The others said we should not. The Lord judged them there. They wander until they die, and now they come in. Now it's prepared under the leadership of Joshua. And the Lord, again, does a dramatic act, splitting the Jordan as he split the Red Sea. And they march into the land, and the, the, the cities, the little kingdoms in this land who hear of this tremble in fear over this amazing display of the God of these people as they come into the land. And there they are encamped now outside of Jericho. And now it will begin. And here again, we have a picture. We're, again, what story are we in? This is our story. This is the story of redemption. This is the story of the world. And here we have now the conquest of the land, a picture of the conquest of the new heavens and new earth. This is the victory that God has promised to his people, the land flowing with milk and honey. That was the end of his bringing Moses to the land. Hey, you go in there, I'm going to deliver them, and I'm going to give this land to them, a land flowing with milk and honey. Even rooting itself back to the calling of Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to give your people, your descendants, this land. And so here we have a picture of that inheritance that is ours. Not a little piece of acreage in the Middle East, but that little bit of acreage in the Middle East, which is a picture of the inheritance of God's people, the new heavens and the new earth, as we see it in the book of Revelation. So this is the, the, the consummation then of the story that begins with Moses in the wilderness when he's told to take his shoes off, right? Out there in the wilderness, the Lord calls Moses, meets him prior to going into Egypt, just as God meets Joshua here prior to going into Jericho and bringing this thing to an end God met Moses and he told him hey take your shoes off this is holy ground now you're going to go in there and you're going to tell Pharaoh let my people go how can I do it I'll do it I'll win the battle but you're going to go in and do it and here now Joshua stands before Jericho to bring this thing to its conclusion to its consummation and once again the Lord meets him prior to the battle prior to the engagement tells him take your shoes off this is holy ground. So we can see the bookends here. We can see this story coming to its climax. Okay. Again, you know the story. Let me go ahead and read. I'll read uh, uh, just to bring the text to a conclusion because the angel of the Lord is talking, or the commander of the Lord's army, who I think is the angel of the Lord, is talking to uh, Joshua there at, as our text ended in chapter 5. Let me just go ahead and take it through verse 9 of chapter 6 so we can kind of get the fullness of the story and then we'll make four quick points now Jericho was securely shut up because the children of Israel none went out none came in and the Lord said to Joshua see I have given Jericho into your hand its king and the mighty men of valor you shall march around the city all you men of war you shall go all around the city once then you shall uh, this you shall do six days and seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark but the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. Then Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let the seven priests bear the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city, and let him who is armed advance before the ark of the Lord. Okay, so verse through verse 7. 
All right, so we know, we know most of us know the, the story because we were taught this in our little Sunday schools when we were little kids. This is one of those stories that makes the list of the, the Bible stories to teach our little children. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. We know, we know the song as it goes. Well, four things that I want us to think about quickly about this story. First, as they're prepared to go to battle, and, and I'm sure there's some anxiety there. They've kind of come into the land. There sits this fortified city. The people are locked up inside. How are we going to uh, overcome them? How are we going to breach those walls? Are we going to lay siege and try to starve them out? You know, what is the plan? I'm sure Joshua, as a leader, is strategizing and thinking about what he's going to do. But before that happens, the Lord comes to him in chapter 5, and it's interesting how he prepares them for battle. Before this battle happens, some other things have to happen first, right? And two things happen in the text prior to Joshua meeting the commander of the Lord's army and then getting ready to actually do, actually do battle. And that is the first thing that has to happen is the people need to be circumcised. Now, this is an unusual thing. You know, we think, okay, if, if we were laying out the battle preparations, uh, circumcision would probably not come to our minds as, okay, here's the one prerequisite we know we need to do is circumcise our men. Uh, and, and yet the Lord comes and says, okay, you're here. We're, we're, we're at this point of consummation. You've crossed the Jordan. Now, at this point, before we proceed, let's go ahead and get these men circumcised. Circumcision is no joke to God. They're not winning this battle if these men are not circumcised. They, like the generation preceding them, will die here if they do not circumcise themselves and have these men circumcised. Like with Moses himself, prior to going into the battle, you'll remember before he goes to Pharaoh, again, the, the resonances are here for us. Moses, you'll remember, is on his way back and the Lord comes to kill him. The man who just the chapter before, he said, you're my guy, Moses, go into the land, uh, into Pharaoh, I'm going to destroy Pharaoh through you. I mean, you're the guy. The next chapter, the Lord seeks to kill him. And his wife, immediately, a wonderful theologian, recognizes what's happening and why the Lord is seeking to kill him, realizes they did not circumcise their child, and she then sharpens a piece of flint and does it herself and then grossly throws the foreskin at Moses and says, what are you, what are you nuts you're trying to get us killed here. This is no joke to God. This isn't like a little ceremony that's, you know, it's a, it's a cute little thing that we do with it's one of those rituals, meaningless, empty signs, empty signs, just a sign that you need to do because this is what, you know, the Jews do. No, no, this matters so much that God will come after his great servant Moses and kill him if he doesn't do it. You're not winning this battle if these men are not circumcised. Circumcision matters that much. Because circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God had with his people that you are to wear in your flesh. Circumcision was the sign that marked you out as a people who were cut off from the rest of the world, who were not conformed to the pattern of this world, but who were to be transformed unto the Lord. Now granted, physical circumcision itself was insufficient. It didn't do it, and that's why Ultimately, the prophets will come along and say, you need to circumcise your hearts. 
But the circumcision of the flesh was not an insignificant sign. It wasn't something, well, it doesn't really matter as long as your heart is circumcised. It mattered so much that the Lord said, before we go into battle, first things first, get those kids and those men circumcised because their fathers were disobedient and did not do it. And they're all dead in the wilderness. This circumcision matters. This commitment to the covenant, this identity as the unique people of God matters. And it matters for us too. Circumcision, of course, points forward to the work of Jesus Christ, who, as Paul says in Colossians 2, you who were, he's talking to the Colossians, who were not circumcised have in fact been circumcised by the cutting off of the flesh of Christ on the cross. One thing, one lens by which we can use to look and interpret what's happening on the cross, believe it or not, is circumcision. Jesus is literally being circumcised on the cross. He is being cut off for the sake of the world in his flesh. And then we receive that in our baptisms. Paul immediately links that to our baptisms. And he says, and you have this by being united to him in your baptism. That is, in your baptism, you receive the circumcision of Christ, which was portrayed by the circumcision of Israel. So our baptisms matter. They're not these insignificant little rituals that we go through because we all like to, you know, watch little, little children in white gowns get baptized or because they're just merely an outer representation of some inner faith. This is a sign and a seal of God's covenant promises which he places upon you and marks you out as his unique people. And it matters. Of course, the interior matters. Baptism alone will save no one. But baptism is a commanded sacramental identification that the Lord calls his people to have. So the first preparation is they need to be circumcised. Then the second preparation is Passover. Interesting that this is happening at Passover. But they celebrate Passover together before they go in. Now this is, this is wonderful. And then not only do they celebrate Passover, but then at Passover now the manna stops. And now they eat the fruit of the land that the Lord is giving them. So in some sense, we have a, we have a, a vision, a sacramental vision here. Prior to the, the spiritual warfare that needs to be fought, the people partake of the sacraments in the Old Testament forms. They are circumcised and they partake of Passover. We are baptized. We partake of the Lord's Supper, which is that heavenly foretaste, that food of the new creation that we partake in as we prepare every day, right? The, the, the Lord's day, the early church in their wisdom moved the day of worship from the seventh day to the first day of a new week. We begin our weeks with these things. We begin our weeks by coming and feeding on the word of God. On those Sundays in which we partake of the Lord's Supper, we come together to be fed by that food of the land, that food of the new creation that by God's grace we're inheriting and we feed ourselves on that and we receive our nourishment for that in order then to go do war. In order to fight. We are strengthened by this special and unique food. And so at the very beginning, before we even get to the battle, we get a little picture of Christian worship that sits at the front, the forefront of our spiritual battles. 
And without these things, you will not win the battle. Without these things, you cannot march into Jericho and expect victory. But the Lord provides us at the forefront. The sacraments, the word of God, right at the outset so that they may go to battle. So just a preparatory remark, but we ought to, as we make the connection, as we pull this story through the lens of Jesus Christ into our day, we ought to do the proper adjustments and understand what we do in our spiritual battle, that the picture is here for us too. Your spiritual battle is no less real than, than Joshua's. How ought we be prepared? Well, it's a great start being here today. Right? As we come into the Lord's house today, as we, throughout our days, partake of the sacraments, as we wear our circumcisions in our baptisms, we are thus prepared to go and to do the war he calls us to do. Okay, so first, the preparation. Secondly, the nature of the battle. And we've already referred to this, so I won't spend long. But the nature of this battle was absolute and to the uttermost. Joshua, we know from Deuteronomy 20, and I think 7 or 8, uh, Joshua is called to go into the land and to do absolute warfare. The, that Psalm 18 warfare that we just sung about, in which the people are ground down to the dust, they're, they're leveled in the mud. It's, it's hard stuff, it's tough stuff, but it's real stuff. And the battle that the Lord has called us to fight is that of absolute and stark consequences. Again, you know how much I love the book of Revelation and one of the things, there's a multitude of things, not the least of which is that it too is meant to shape the narrative of the world we live in. It is meant to give us the symbols by which we can properly interpret the world we live in. So that without that, we're lacking something. Don't, don't be overwhelmed by Rome's glory. It's beastly, you know. Don't be overwhelmed by Roman culture. It's a whore, right? I mean, this is, this is what Revelation is trying to tell you, you know. Don't, don't be discouraged by the looks of the church. It's a bride, you know, that, that kind of thing. That's what Revelation is, is meaning to do. And, and by the way, also in this text, the trumpets being blown, right? Uh, John draws on that imagery in the, in, the, in the vision of the seven trumpets, right? These warnings to the world. These walls are coming down. These walls are coming down. Repent. These walls are coming down. Repent. Be like Rahab. Run out and join, run out and join these people. These walls are coming down. John draws on that in the image of Revelation and the trumpets. But one of the things I love most about Revelation is that it is so stark. It's either this or that. You're either in Babylon or you're in the New Jerusalem. You're either with the bride or you're with the harlot. You're either with the beast or the lamb. You're either with the God who sits on the throne or the serpent who is on the shore empowering the beast. I mean, it is one or the other. In a world of gray, in a world of confusion, in a world of so many voices, in a world of inclusion, the Bible just takes the knife and goes, cuts right through it all, and says, you're either for me or against me. There are only two roads, the narrow way, the broad way. There are only two gates, this way or that way. Done. Just like, wow, cuts the fog of all the, all the cloudiness of our culture, just cuts right through it. And it's absolute. One leads to glory. One leads to utter destruction. I mean, again, 
for all this business about, oh, well, the God of the Old Testament, and, you know, in the Old Testament, God did harsh things. But in the New Testament, hey, it's, it's Jesus meek and mild, and he has children sitting on his, bobbing him on his knee, and lambs around his neck. And, and true, he does do these things. But don't forget how the New Testament ends. The New Testament ends with a rider on a white horse, with a sword coming out of his mouth, with a robe that is stained in blood, with blood being from the grapes of wrath being crushed, which, which in this case are people, being crushed in the, in the wine press of his judgment so that the blood comes up to the bridles of the horses and he's taking the beast and all who follow the beast and throwing him into the pit of hell. Don't ever confuse Old so the old, the old Testament, God is very harsh, right? But in the New Testament, he, no. In, in the Old Testament, we see the holy wrath of God. In the New Testament, we see the holy wrath of God. In the Old Testament, we see the unbelievable mercy of God. In the New Testament, we see the unbelievable mercy of God. And the point is, be on God's side. Trust in him. This holy war takes no prisoners. You are either with the Lord or you are against him. And so in this story, it's harsh. Harsh by our standards, I mean. It's, it's severe. That's, I guess, a better word. It's severe. But this is the reality of the world in which we live. This is the story you are living in. Don't ever forget it. This, this, this ends with final judgment. And we ought not forget now, for our battles, the, the, if we, we, we need to take this story, because certainly we know that this story does not call us then to go start picking up swords, marching around Manhattan, you know, seven times, blowing trumpets, and, and, then, and then if walls don't come down, then we just go in and start slaying everybody. We know we have to take this now through the lens of Jesus Christ, not because that's ridiculous. Again, one day the Lord is going to come bring that ultimate physical judgment. So I don't want to say, well, again, that's the way God did it once. No, there's this kind of absolute judgment. But because of what happened on the cross, because Jesus on the cross basically takes the judgment of Jericho on himself, he calls us then to extend the mercy, to extend the news that, hey, if you trust in him, your Jericho will have taken place already. Don't worry about it. Trust in him. We have to go do battle now in light of the cross, but our battle looks a little different. right? And we heard that from Ephesians 6. You do battle now with a sword, but your sword is the word of God. But it is absolute. Mark referenced in his prayer this morning, the line which became for us at our study center at Dwarf Hill, became our theme verse, uh, in, um, in 2 Corinthians 10. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul uses this warfare language. It's language that I told my students when, we're, when I'm teaching them apologetics, and it makes them a little uncomfortable because we don't, we don't think of apologetics or evangelism or Christian ministry as combat, but it is combat. It most certainly is combat. This is why Paul is telling you, put on the armor. That it's not physical combat, though it may be physical toward us. But I don't fight back physically, so it may have physical consequences for me, But because I know the battle we're in is absolute, it is stark, it is utter combat. But for us, it's just not physical. Paul says it this way, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Now notice he doesn't say, we don't war. 
No, he just says, we don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, oh yes, we do war. We just don't war according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. You say, oh, so they're not real weapons. Paul says, oh, no, no, no. They're the realist weapons. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Jericho. They pull down strongholds. We cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And here's the, the phrase that we used at Dwarf Hill. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Take every thought captive. We tear down strongholds. I try to give this metaphor as one of the metaphors for doing Christian apologetics, Christian evangelism, or just cultural engagement. Our call to warfare is absolute. It's in the realm of ideas. Our weapons are prayer. Our weapons are the preaching of God's word. Our preparation for this is not boot camp, but it's worship, it's sacraments, it's hearing the word of God preached. That's what our warfare looks like, but make no mistake about it. It is warfare, and you, though you don't bear carnal weapons, you bear the most real weapons, the weapons that actually have power. Swords can do nothing. They take physical life, but they, they don't win any real battle. You fight with real weapons, and it is absolute you are to take every thought captive. That means when we come into our spheres of influence, when we come into our jobs, when we come into our cultures, when we come into our families, we're walking into combat. And you better come armed, and you better come armored up, ready to do battle. Thirdly, the battle plans are quite foolish. I'm, I've already said a little bit about this, so I'm lapping over. And I, I pulled the title of the sermon, though we could have pulled it from any of these points, but pulled it from this, The Foolish of God, drawing on 1 Corinthians 1. Because let's face it, if we could flash back now into Jericho and Joshua's day, Joshua, I'm sure, is a little anxious, like a good coach before a game, a good general before a battle, right? You get the butterflies, you're a little anxious. Okay, what's the plan here? You're relying on all your wisdom and what you're going to do. And then all of a sudden, the commander of the Lord shows up and says, let me give you the battle plans. And some sense, you're like, okay, what do you have? You know, like, let's hear it. But then he gets these ridiculous battle plans for any general. What general is looking at this and going, excuse me? Like, just march around, you know? Oh, oh, Hitler, you've got Hitler out there. Uh, you, you've got him, you know, uh, stymied there in, in Central Europe. Now, here's going to be the plan. Just march around his army seven times. And then, and then when you get around the seventh time, blow the trumpets and shout really loud. This is the, this is the battle plans that he's given. Utter foolishness by any of the world's standards. Which again, if we are conformed to the pattern of the world, we won't even give heed to this. It'll seem utterly ridiculous. We won't even listen. Unless we've got the commander of the Lord, Lord's army telling us to take our shoes off, then you may tend to listen. But when he comes, when Joshua comes back and tells you, okay guys, here's the plan. You're gonna say, are you out of your mind? This is the plan we're going with? Hey, if Jesus Christ showed up and told you this stuff, you might listen. But when Bill Spanger's up here telling you, you might be like, Bill, come on. But this is, the, this is the foolish strategy that the Lord gives him. You will look a lot less like soldiers and a lot more like worshipers out there. 
We've got the priests in the front. That's never a good battle strategy. You've got the ark. We're carrying around this big heavy box. You know, we've got the horns. Does everybody have their horns? You know, they're going into battle in your first thoughts. Did everybody bring their ram horns? Everybody's <laughs> good. All right, now listen. When we get here, you're going to shout really loud. But this bizarre strategy is the wisdom of God. It is the strategy that in the end will bring victory. And if we are conformed to the pattern of the world, we will not give it any attention. We will rely on our own wisdom. We will fight the world's battles the way the world fights their battles. We will rely so much more on politics. We will rise, rely so much more on Supreme Court justices. And, li and listen, don't get me wrong, I'm right there. I'm right there, I'm into this as much as anyone is. I'm as anxious about this as anyone is anxious. And it's to my fault <laughs> that I, and, and to my, my shame that I say these things. And rely less upon the wisdom and the strategy of God. I should spend more time in prayer and less time on the internet. More time in prayer, less time on Twitter. More time in prayer, less time on our local news stations or reading our you know, best blogs or whatever we're doing. Getting anxious about these things and more time using the weapons that the Lord has actually put in my hands that says, now listen, here's my strategy. I go, I know, I know, I know. But, I, but, this, but this blogger, is, you know, this blogger or this guy on Twitter has really got me going here and I got to deal with this. No, he's given us what looks like a foolish strategy, but if we are transformed in the renewing of our minds, we recognize the weapons for what they are and we pick them up and we go. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, he has done this through the foolishness of preaching. The Greeks want wisdom the Jews demand a sign, but God has given us foolishness. He's given us preaching. He's given you Bill Spanger. Oh, no. He's given you this ridiculous thing where we gather on a Sunday for 40 minutes to hear me exhort you from the scriptures, from a text. What power does that have in the presence of all the madness that's going on outside these walls? And yet the Lord says, but that's my strategy. Do it. Do it. Partake of the sacraments. Live into the future. Eat this heavenly food. Be baptized. Get on your knees and pray and sing really loud. And the walls will come down. Trust me. It's a foolish strategy by our standards, but the foolishness, what appears foolish, and the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. That's how he says it. So finally, the victory. The victory of the battle. What's awesome about this passage is that Joshua is preparing, got those butterflies a little anxious. He turns around, there's a guy with a sword drawn. <laughs> He's got his sword drawn. Now, if he had guns, who knows? You draw quickly. Like, you guys, is this a guy from Jericho coming out here? He, Joshua, too, stands up and he says, hey, are you, are you with us or are you with our adversaries? And the guy says, no. <laughs> no. But as commander of the Lord's army, I come. Joshua does a face plan. He just falls before the Lord and face plants right there. And the Lord says, now, take your shoes off. He loves to tell people this. Take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. What's happening here in this story? Here, coming out, if you will, of Jericho is the commander of the Lord's army, having already won the battle. Right? The battle is his. And the commander of the Lord's army is already coming out. He's wrought the victory. He, again, here's the great David who comes over to you and says, hey, listen, there's Goliath laying headless in the brook. 
Go get them, boys. And they, they run after the Philistines, and the Philistine army is running away scared. And it says, and the Israelite army went in and just plundered the camp of the Philistines. It's like that's all the fighting they do. It's not even fighting. It's not even battle. Because David slayed Goliath and cut his head off, and that's it. The armies run. Here comes the commander. Here comes your David. Here comes the commander of the Lord's army. He's coming out of Jericho with a sword drawn. He's already won the victory, and now he says to Joshua, now here's what you do. This is why the battle plan seems so ridiculous, because it's not about winning. I've won. It's just about cleaning up the mess. It's about plundering the camp. It's about now just executing what's already been accomplished. And so it is for us. What reason would Joshua now have to be anxious about the battle? That's a really good question for you and me. What reason do you or I have to be anxious about the battle that's before us? If in fact, the commander of the Lord's army has already appeared to us, he has already fought the battle, we've seen it won at Calvary, there he is crushing the head of his enemy. On Wednesday's table talk, we'll talk about the, the kingliness of the, of the cross. At least that's one thing we'll talk about. But he's crushing the head of the serpent right there. You see it being done. Now is the time for this world to be judged, he says in John chapter 12. It's all being defeated there on the cross. There is your David slaying the mighty Goliath. There is your commander of the Lord's army defeating Jericho, conquering all the enemies that stand before you and inheriting this amazing promised land. There he is fighting this battle and he comes off the cross in the resurrection of the dead and says, now, now go into all nations with this foolish strategy of preaching and praying. You say, but we've got to come up with a better, we've got to come up with something that will really just bring this, talk. just go, just one guy talking to another guy. One woman talking to another woman, raising your children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, and you, you're, all you're doing is working out by the Spirit the victory that I have already won. And therefore, there's no need to be anxious. Just go. And isn't it interesting that this event is happening right there at Passover? When years later, there at Passover, Jesus breaking the bread and feeding his men, his soldiers... Right, that bread. Then at, after they partake of Passover, Jesus now goes to the cross, goes into Jericho, and does mighty battle, and comes out and announces his victory in the resurrection, and then summons us to go. You and I stand with our Joshua. We're there. We have our, our war orders, our battle orders. And again, I, I don't want to minimize this. It is war. It's just a war that's already won. And you do have to take it seriously. It does call for obedience. Israel needed to walk around that thing seven times. They couldn't say, well, if it's already one, we'll just do it some other. No, no, no. no. March around there, and that's it for today. Go home. Tomorrow morning, come back and do it again. Same thing. You do that seven times. On the seventh day, march around seven times. I'm giving you precise orders. Live out the victory that I have wrought and bring it out the way that I've commanded. And indeed, victory will be wrought. And this is true for us. Why do we show up here week after week after week? What if we thought about the reason we show up here is because the Lord says, this is the way we're going to win the battle. Just do it. 
They'll say, well, what if I tried that? What if we did this? What if we came up with some other system? What if we tried something, some internet system? No, 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 no. Do what I tell you to do. Do not forsake the gathering of my people. Get together, eat the word of God, feed upon the sacrament, be baptized, get on your knees and pray, sing really loud, and get back out to doing what you do. And then get back here next week and let's do it again. And trust that by that, the kingdoms of this world they have nothing. They're, they're weaponless. They're weaponless against the weapons that we bring to bear. This is where we prepare for war, and this is where war is going on, right here against principalities and powers. I really encourage you this morning to think about the lenses that you use and that I use to interpret what's happening. What are you walking into tomorrow? You're going to wake up and throw on the armor of God Equip yourself with the tools and the weapons that the Lord has given you to go in and do spiritual battle with Jericho, knowing that the victory is already won? Or are you just going to work? Just waking up and going back to school? And then Sunday, I guess it's just going to church because that's what we're supposed to do on Sundays. No, it's much bigger than that. Trust the Lord and let's fight and let's know that the victory is ours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing story. We thank you for Christ, our champion, that commander of your army, which has already wrought the victory. We thank you that you have enlisted us into your service, that you have equipped us and empowered us. You have cut us off and separated us by our baptisms. You have fed us by the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, that heavenly food, the first fruits of a new creation. You have given us the great leader, our Joshua, our commander, who has gone before us, who has wrought the victory, and who now summons us to go in obedience to execute, to bring about, to unfold the victory that has already been wrought by him. Oh, fill us with confidence. Guard us from apathy. Guard us from anxiety. But fill us with supreme confidence as we look forward to that ultimate end, the great consummation, the full inheritance of the land that is ours already in him. We give you thanks for this in Christ's name. Amen.